The last two years have strained families, leaving the fate of many children in the hands of social workers and judges. Today, we speak with a woman who founded an organization dedicated to making sure the voice of children are heard during such tumultuous times. I'm Matt Mowry, editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, founder and president of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. We usually, you know, we, we sometimes get a little goofy in our banter in the beginning here, and we have a good time, but I want to ask you a semi-serious question, um, sort of related to uh, our, our guest today, but um, you are a, uh, you and your wife, of course, are parents of adoptive children. We are. We're an adoptive family. Very I love proud that. of it. I love that. Um, why, my big question is, why, and what has that been like for you? Well, um, you know, we, for a while, due to medical issues, didn't think we were going to have kids. Mm. And, you know, we were kind of sailed through our 20s and 30s thinking that was okay. And then um, our niece and nephew came in our lives. And um, my wife saw my interacting with him and said, hmm, maybe we need to have some kiddos. (laughs) And I had served on some boards of nonprofit organizations mm-hmm. that kind of were the before and after of when families run into trouble. Oh. So one uh, was called uh, the Hub Family Resource Center. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no longer there, unfortunately, but it was in Dover. Mm-hmm. And it served Seacoast families so that it had all kinds of parenting classes and support groups for grandparents that are parenting, all kinds of different ways that parents would need support and families would need support. Nice. And it was kind of, you know, it was an organization that was there to help families before they really got into any big trouble, you know, to help guide you through that really, it's, it's, it's tough to be a parent, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I also served on a board of Our House for Girls. Um, I, I swear I'm not the uh, death knell for nonprofits, but unfortunately they're no longer there either <laughs> um, because of financial situations due to the way the state um, now deals with uh, how we place children. Mm-hmm. But Um, They were around for quite a while and a great resource, and they were a temporary place for girls who had been removed from their home by the Mm. state um, due to issues in the family um, and did not have a immediate placement that they a safe place they could be placed. And so instead of kids falling through that crack, which is very easily done, um, we were a a home that they could come and stay in with counselors and people that are making sure they're getting to school and and getting the mental health resources they need Mm -hmm. while the courts figured out what to do with their situation, either being able to resolve the issue in the family and bring them back or... um, finding a, a better permanent placement for them if that's not possible. Yeah. So very long story, not short. <laughs> I had kind of seen what, you know, I knew that there were kids out there and, and Lisa knew also through the, that volunteer work that I did, you know, that were in rough situations that needed a good home. And we're like, well, we can do that, you know? So uh, we took these foster care classes that you have to go through that, to be honest, scared the bejesus out of us. And that's <laughs> the bet. point of them, really, because uh-huh. it's great to want to be a foster parent or an adoptive parent of a, of a kid in the foster system. Mm-hmm. But um, you really need to be 
I don't think you can ever truly be ready, but you really need to go with a lot of thought of what you're going to do for that child Mm -hmm. and what it's going to mean to your life. Because, um, you know, I think there's this false assumption by people that kids in the foster system are broken Mm. and they're not. No, there are kids that have come from really difficult situations that even when they're taken away from really bad situations Mm -hmm. that have been in the family, that's still their family. So they've suffered all kinds of trauma. They suffered the trauma that they've undergone that has caused them to be removed. And they've gone undergone the trauma of being removed from the family they know. Mm. And that's a lot for a kid to deal with. And it comes out in a lot of different ways. And not always the most positive behaviors. It's a lot to take on. Mm -hmm. And so these classes are really teaching you like what you might be in for. And my wife and I actually after we completed, we took a break. We're like, we were so stressed out and wow. questioning, like, can we do this? Yeah. Are we the people to do this? And, you know, and we took the summer off, we took a breath and we went, yes, we, we're going to do this. And we're so glad we did. I mean, cool. um, my kiddos, I can't even, I, I remember life before them and I complain like every parent about like, oh my God, my kids drive me crazy. But you know, life before our kiddos just seems like a distant memory now. Mm. And, um, you know, they brought so much to our lives and we brought so much to theirs. Um, but it's not a Disney movie. Mm-mm. You know, it's the, we've had a lot of hard times along that way. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's times when you're like, I'm going to accept that trophy for parent of the year. <laughs> and like two seconds back, you're giving the apology speech and handing the trophy back, <laughs> um, you know, cause it gets overwhelming. And it, you know, for us, it's my wife and I obviously have leaned on each other through all of it to get yeah. us through some of those tough times. And thank goodness for her. Cause mm. You know, she's my rock and I'm hope I'm hers. Um, but, you know, we've had family counselors, you mm-hmm. know, that the state helped bring in. And that was tremendous help wow. because you, you face some situations. I mean, parenting is yeah. hard no matter who yeah. you are. Jeez, I think we all need a good counselor once in a while for our families. Right. Yeah, never mind. But when you're parenting a kiddo with trauma and not always trauma, you know, I mean, yeah, right. I, I, you know, my kids are older now. They're, they're 13, they're 10. We're still yeah. and they're still discovering things that as kids go on that natural path of growing up mm. and discovering who you are, well, then they, they're they also figuring things out. Like, huh, what I went through was not right. That's mm. not the way things should Boy, have gone. Then, yeah. Why did things go that way? Yeah. Who am I as a result of it? Or just memories that they hadn't had before yeah. come up. And so it's, you're always... You know, it's not like a, a a kiddo gets adopted and everything's perfect. Yeah, no, no, that's you know, just the beginning it, of it. They need so much love and guidance and far more patience than you will ever think you need. And I'm not a well of it. <laughs> I, they is something they have taught me um, because, you know, there's times that you have those normal parent kid conflicts mm. and then they just take a left turn that you didn't see coming. Yep. And you're like, you know. Those situations that we joke about, like, like that escalated quickly. Well, sometimes they really do. And you have no idea why until you do some digging and then you figure out like, oh, and then you got to figure out another way of parenting that. Yeah. So it's, it's something I would highly recommend mm. that there's so many kids out there that need it. But to be a foster parent, we only did it once. You mm-hmm. know, we, 
we somehow were one and done, you know, like in a good way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the boys came in our lives. We were foster parents for about a year and a half. And we just knew that they needed to be ours. Mm. And, you know, unfortunately that meant a breakup of a family, you know, and we tried to keep some the, you know, we have an extended family now because their extended family is still, we kept them in the picture because oh, wow. they weren't the reason, yeah. you know, that the kiddos need to be taken away. And right. Right. We, we wanted them to have that connection still. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it for people that actually foster multiple kids, mm. I, I I salute them because that is bringing a child and being asked to love them as your own mm. and be ready at any moment to give them up. Oh my gosh! Hopefully Oof. for a good reason that the the family can be reunified, yeah. things are being addressed, right? Or that they're having to go on to another placement. Mm-hmm. Um, that takes a lot. So I, I would highly recommend people foster and adopt. It's Wow. Sorry. Very fulfilling. Yeah. On a lot of, of ways. Yeah. But it's not an easy path. No. So you have, you cannot be another adult who's failed them. Yeah. So you got to be in wow. it to win it. Wow. And that's a special episode of Biscastination. Oh, no. I am, I'm so, so glad that I asked because, um, I, I think you're an amazing parent and an amazing human. And I'm so glad that you did it because honestly, I don't think I could, uh, you know, I, I think, I think to myself and about myself and I'm like, man, I, w- you know, I would love to be able to, you know, or say that I, that I could do that too, but boy, it's hard. It's hard. And it's hard for a long time. Like you said, it doesn't, it's not just, you know, it's not just the end of, of once they're adopted, it's not just the end of all, it's sort of the beginning of, of a lot of stuff. So good for you. Good but for your you wife. See those changes happen. In yeah. Them? Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, it's worthwhile. I'm, I'm saying thank you um, on behalf of, I don't know who, but I'm saying thank you because um, that's, that's amazing work that you've done, which is a nice segue into the amazing work that our guest this week, Marty Sink, has done over the years. Um, as founder of New Hampshire's Court Appointed Special Advocates, or CASA, in 1988, Marsha Marty Sink has led the CASA of New Hampshire organization to become a key participant in the state's child welfare system and family court system. Marty served as a member of the National CASA Board of Directors, as a trustee of the Mayhew Program Board of Trustees since 2016, and has received numerous awards and accolades for her commitment to serving child victims as well as organizational leadership. Marty's an alum of Leadership New Hampshire, certified life coach, and a former foster and adoptive parent. She's also the mother of three sons. Welcome, Marty. Thank you. Thank it's you so much to be here. for joining us. Um, before we dive into your longstanding passion for making a difference in the lives of children and families, can you tell our listeners about CASA of New Hampshire? What is CASA? What is the impact what, uh, that it has on children and families here in New Hampshire? Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you for this opportunity and Matt for sharing your your story. Wow. It's, it's powerful. It's going to be some hugs after this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also being a foster, former foster and adoptive parent, I can completely relate to everything you said. So thank you for that. CASA is a a statewide nonprofit organization, um, and we recruit, uh, train, and supervise volunteers from communities all over the state 
um, to serve in the role of a guardian ad litem, who is uh, someone who is appointed by the court to bring to our judges on a regular basis what is in the best interest of these children who have ended up in that child protection system mm. through no fault of their own, right. um, but due to severe uh, physical, sexual, um, emotional abuse or devastating um, neglect. Mm. And our advocates, of which now we have nearly 600, are uh, in every court and every community in the state, and they are doing this amazing work um, as volunteers, um, getting to know these children, um, not like a big brother, big sister, mm-hmm. and they're not, mm-hmm. they're not a quasi-foster family, uh, but they are just really gathering, they're fact finders for our judges, and bringing that information to the court so they can make better informed more timely uh, decisions about about children and that will impact their futures or um, their lifetime potentially. So wow. that's in a nutshell what we do. <laughs> that uh, is in a nutshell indeed. So um, CASA is a national organization and you founded CASA here in New Hampshire. So, and that was a while back. Um, mm-hmm. Why at that time CASA? And um, you, you could have started an, maybe another nonprofit or your own nonprofit. Why CASA? And maybe why was that at the forefront? For right. You? And I, I was a foster parent at the time, mm-hmm. uh, had a guardian at litem appointed to children who were in my home, mm. um, who actually back in the day were carrying in these attorneys primarily were carrying enormous caseloads and really not getting to know the children, who they are, um, what their, what their life had been, what it was now. Mm. Um, and yet they were they were showing up at court hearings and sharing what they thought was in the best interest of these children. And as a foster parent, it just frustrated me that how can someone do that without knowing, n- never even meeting these children that I had in my home? So uh, I was reading an article in Parade Magazine on a Sunday morning about children in the foster care drift. Mm-hmm. And back then, you know, Kiddos were spending their entire childhood in foster care. This is, you know, over 30 years ago, bouncing from one home to the next and um, being victims again of a system that wasn't addressing permanency for them. So I got in touch with a few people, another foster parent. And, you know, when people say I found it, it was really a, it was a village that uh, took to get CASA off the ground. But um it was amazing. We uh, made some inroads with two judges who were willing to try this this very out of the box way of of serving in the role of a guardian ad litem mm. as a volunteer, who were willing to take a chance. And we trained our first ten volunteers in 1989, and from there uh, the word spread. And I think it was truly in those days it was it was challenging because there were attorneys that were already doing this work, and there were DCYF social workers who were you know sort of protective of their territory. Mm. And then here comes this volunteer <laughs> and enters the scene uh, in these highly confidential, um, very protected types of hearings. Mm. Um, and so there were some barriers along the way for sure, but it was our judges who said, keep doing this because this is the information that I need so I can make better informed decisions. So if it weren't for our amazing judiciary at that time in New Hampshire, which still exists today, we have wonderful judges sitting on these highly complicated, very difficult cases every single day. But if it weren't for them, I don't know that we would have made it through some of those, over some of those hurdles along the way. But um, 
and and for the people that stepped up and said, I want to do this. I, I want to spend time, uh, my time, my emotional, you know, my emotional time, mm-hmm. fortitude and um, donating, you know, various times my own resources to do this work. So um, they're extraordinary people. They are. They are. So... First of all, let's talk a bit, maybe define a bit more what a garden ad litem is mm-hmm. and the role that they play mm-hmm. when these cases go to court. Sure. Well, to become a CASA guardian ad litem, I, we have actually higher standards um, in a lot of ways. Um, where they would go through an extensive screening and application process. Uh, then they are expected to um, participate in 40 hours of our mandatory training in advance of being assigned to a case. But our, ju- our court, the judges, um, they, our cases come directly from the court, and we have seven offices around the state. So depending on the region that folks are in, um, they would be coming from a specific court. Our staff would be reaching out to the CASA volunteer to see if they were interested in taking the case. We'll know a little bit of information about the details of the case so we can inform those folks and they sort of know what they're getting into, Um, although we never know what we're getting into in these cases with these children. (laughs) Um, But then then they would be expected to um, get to know, again, get to know the child, get to know other significant people in the child's life, whether it's teachers or guidance counselors, uh, maybe medical providers, aunts, uncles, neighbors, um, and really bring that information to the court. So they're expected to attend every court hearing, and those happen roughly every three months. Um, And they are expected to address the court as any other professional in the courtroom. They are um, an officer of the court, appointed as an officer, so they have just as much credibility and standing as any attorney in that courtroom or social worker. Um, and they're just sharing it through a, a written court report, which becomes part of the court file, um, but also articulating some of the highlights of, of the case and the child's needs. Um, and those needs, as you know, Matt, can range from having regular sibling visits if they're in, in separate right. foster homes to making sure that they're getting after-school care or therapy. And, I mean, the pandemic has done awful things and to our families and kids. And it's been, um, it's been a real, I think, eye-opening. Uh, we anticipated it, but we didn't realize how bad these cases could become. So how do guardian ad litems get to know kids? And especially, I mean, some of the kids you're dealing with are toddlers or infants that have no way of mm-hmm. telling you or a limited way of telling you what, not only what happened to them, but what they want. Right. Um, and, you know, oftentimes they just want to be back with mom and dad. So how does a guardian interact with their with the kids that they're they're charged with? And how do they make sure they're getting at to the root of what is best for that child? That's a great question, Matt. And, it, it, you know, it can vary so much from child to child um, and from case to case. Uh, but they are advocates and, and some some kids don't warm up to people. You know, here's another new person in my life. I'm Mm. dealing with a social worker. I'm dealing with, you know, a counselor at school who reported the abuse. And I, you know, there's so many uh, individuals, it gets complicated for our kids. But I think the strength of the CASA is that they show up. They show up over and over and over again. And for some of these kids, they've never had that before. They may have moved in foster care. They may have moved just parents who were more transient, but they show up. They they will 
sit with a child. Um, they will color on the floor with kiddos, read them books. Um, some of our older youth, they will they will just very slowly become develop a relationship um, that is unique, and they let these children know what their role is and how important their message is to get to the to our judges. The out of the work, you know, the voice of the child, but and some of our kids are attending court, which is a new phenomenon that we were we've been wow. we worked with the courts and DCYF with about ten years ago, so that children could attend their court hearings, and it's an incredibly empowering opportunity for these kids to show up in the courtroom. You know, people are making decisions about their lives, and, and they keep right. hearing things these. are happening to them. Exactly, Ugh. exactly. But for them to have the opportunity to walk into a courtroom and actually see what's going on, and for our judges to lay eyes on these kids has been one of the most powerful. Even it's an, it, it's an infant, right? And the infant starts crying. Is mom reaching out to grab, you know, to hold that child, or is child content in foster mom's hands? Or we had one situation where dad was brought in in uh, shackled in an orange jumpsuit, and his four-year-old daughter lit up, climbed into his lap, and sat with him through the through the hearing. Oh. So it's incredible. Um, I, but Matt, to that earlier question, I think it's really just about showing up and being there and being committed to listening, to hearing, to observing. Um, how did your visit with mom go? Uh, on Tuesday, you know, was it, you know, are checking in with foster parents for re- really young kids? How, you know, what are their behaviors like? Are they having night terrors? Um, are they, you know, crying every night that they miss mom? Those kinds of details um, help paint a picture of who these who these kids are. The pandemic, obviously, as you said, you know, it's affected so many aspects of life, and the courts obviously were not immune to that. They had to change the way for a while they did business. Mm-hmm. How did you and your volunteers adjust for the pandemic in doing already challenging work that often requires building a level of trust in person? What happened during that time? It was it was quite it was very challenging. Uh, our court um, hearings uh, they didn't slow down; they all continued um, virtually or telephonically. Uh, primarily, telephonic mm. hearings were held. But our judges, again, were committed to ensuring that these kids had, there were no delays in that permanency, which can be reunification, adoption, guardianship. Um, so our, we, we couldn't slow down. We had, to keep, we had to keep recruiting virtually. We had to train virtually. But our, our volunteers were amazingly creative. Um, we had, I mean, we saw, saw stories of you know, everything from reading a, a three-year-old a bedtime story by her casa virtually on on her iPad, or <laughs> um, you know, doing drive-bys and just kind of waving or standing outside the 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 fence to the to the house, and they got amazingly creative because they didn't want to lose that connection, and it was hard. It's it's. It's hard work, um, and the pandemic just put this level of. And I'll tell you, the the people that I I admire our advocates tremendously. Foster families during the pandemic, when they've got three foster kids in their home, and maybe they're th- three are from different families, um, trying to schedule DCYF visits virtually, um, parent parent visits if they could do those safely. Mm. Um, and and that, so it's 
our foster parents were tremendous, um, and we need more of them. We need so many more good, solid foster homes in New Hampshire. To that, um, to that end, in terms of needing so many more, um, you obviously had said in the beginning that CASA is uh, the the advocates are all volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, are there enough volunteers? No. Will there ever be enough volunteers? I do hope you think? so. Okay, <laughs> then I all can right. retire. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Okay. <laughs> no, we're we're uh, we're always. Um, our goal is to ser- be available to serve 100 percent of the kids of uh, children in need that come into our court system, mm-hmm. and. Right now, we're serving about almost 90% of the new cases. So we have a little ways to go, another 100 to 200 volunteers, and then retain that number. Right. Because it's exhausting work. As I said earlier, it's emotionally draining. So there's a life expectancy to a CASA volunteer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and we acknowledge that, um, that some will stay through one case. Uh, We ask our advocates to stay from the beginning to the the end of the case. And that can be anywhere from six months to a year, or it can be several years wow. till there's some um, permanency. So it's it's quite a commitment, mm-hmm. but it's a life changing commitment. And we have our volunteers tell us that every day how they wanted to ch- make a difference in the life of a child they never knew how what a difference that child and this work would make in their own lives. Yeah. It's powerful. I was going to sort of ask you um, about sort of like who the, the maybe the best demographic or type of person or situation is to be an advocate. But having, you know, you just said that, I think that in, in what I know of CASA and what I know of, of the advocates is um, it's less about well, I, you know, if you have, the, you got to have the time, obviously, or, or the flexibility to, to be able to make the time, but it's, it's less about, you know, how old you are or where you're from or this or that, or how much money you have and, and all that. Right. I mean, right. it's, it's just that you are willing and able to make a difference and take care of as it were a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that said, you have volunteers who are, the full spectrum of demographic from retired to younger folks to everybody in between. And I, I happen to know a few of them personally. And, um, and I'm always just amazed because again, sort of like saying in Matt's situation, I feel like, Oh my God, I could not do that. I, I, you know, I would, it just is amazing. So there's some amazing, amazing people out there who feel the need or, or have the ability to, to do that. So Exactly. And so anybody can be a CASA is That's what I right. guess I mean to say. You don't need any educational background or life experience necessarily mm. that qualifies you to do this work. You need that commitment to a child. Yeah. And 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 there's, you know, obviously we need foster families, but not everybody can open their home to a child. But this is another way of mm-hmm. getting involved in a child's life right. in a really meaningful and powerful way um, to acknowledge that they can help um, make a difference as well. So. Cool. Um, there, I, I tend to do some nuts and bolts type questions too, and I want to get into maybe a little bit of brass tacks. But CASA of New Hampshire is a five hundred one c three not for profit organization. How are you funded? There's a cost to this, obviously. There's, there's a cost to right. finding volunteers and training and, right. and operating and, and having a staff to dedicate to these folks. How are you funded? We're um, we have a variety of funding sources, fortunately. Um, so if one gets a little skinny, there's others that can. F- Kind of fill in the gaps. Good. Uh, we we do ha- have some support that comes from the state of New Hampshire. Good. Good. Um, because when CASA cannot be appointed on those 10, 12 percent of cases that we can't take, mm-hmm. the court must appoint a paid guardian at litem. Mm. And for the most part, they are still attorneys, um, not carrying 
quite as large caseload as they were 30 years ago, yeah. but still significant caseloads. Um, so we do get that. We do have that contract with the state of New Hampshire to provide guardian ad litem services. We also received some federal dollars for the Victims of Crime Act um, money, which comes through the, our attorney general's office. Um, and then, and that represents roughly f- 45 to 50% of our overall revenues. And the rest is fundraising. Uh, we have incredible donors. We are constantly writing grants to private foundations. Um, on occasion, we'll get a grant from our national CASA office, um, which is also sort of federal dollars that get passed down. But uh-huh. we do fundraising events, um, as you know, Nathan. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we are, uh, again, we just have some real generous people that are regular contributors um, to, to the work we do. Excellent. And you made reference before about the effects that the pandemic has had on our families. Can you talk about what the workload or the type of cases that are, how has that changed from before the pandemic to now when everything that people have experienced? Yeah, we, um, I'll back up a little bit. Uh, When the opioid crisis really Mm. hit the state of New Hampshire, everything exploded for us and kids were in very precarious, dangerous situations. So our caseload jumped dramatically at that time. Um, The opioid epidemic drug hasn't gone away. Right. And I think we tend to think that somehow it's not as um, prevalent. It's there. It's very real. Mm -hmm. And we still have many children coming in as a result of that. But I think what what we're seeing now, Matt, are some of the most egregious cases of neglect and abuse. Um, Mm -hmm. That kids who were in isolation who maybe weren't being seen by teachers regularly, as soon as the pandemic hit, the numbers of reports to DCYF of child abuse dropped by 50% within a couple of weeks. So kids, there were no eyes on. And um, yeah, it's it's been really rough. Um, the, the services and the resources that these families and children need now uh, are, are truly more significant uh, than, than I've seen in the past. And what are the biggest challenges you and the organization face as you try and do your work now? It's that on, ongoing recruitment, uh, retaining folks, supporting them in this really challenging work. And uh, we have an incredibly dedicated staff who are walking beside these our volunteers every day and there to support and guide them. Um, that's, that's a challenge. You know, uh, as any nonprofit knows, finances, finances are always um, you know, a challenge and something that we deal with every single day as well, raising the money to continue to do the work and grow the, grow the work, expand our organization. Um, but we, we're, we're doing it. You know, it's, it's such rewarding work for me, who's been in it as long as I have, um, who still loves going to work every day and getting to work with amazing volunteers, uh, board of directors, judges, and our staff. They're just incredible people. So. They are, Absolutely. And as much as people like to complain about how much government costs, the fact is in New Hampshire, you know, we have more limited government um, services uh, compared to other states. And a lot of that slack is um, picked up by nonprofits. And so there's uh, never seems to be an end to the challenges that uh, nonprofits are, are addressing. So as you look at the work of, of CASA and, and, and the needs that are out there, 
Um, how do you see the organization evolving or changing um, due to the types of needs and demands that are out there? I, th- I think, um, it, Matt, th- th- one of the biggest um, challenges f- for us and frustrating um, is access to services for our families and children, whether that's recovery for parents, uh, treatment um, opportunities, uh, mental health. The, the mental health system needs so much attention and so many resources. And I, I, I say this all the time on a variety of ways in a, on a variety of platforms, but our kids are not getting what they need and their parents aren't getting their, what they need in the area of mental health. And, you know, folks say it's a workforce issue. It's a, this issue. We're not, the state isn't paying them. Whatever it is, it's, it's a huge issue. And I think, Matt, until we can start addressing mental health issues in a real meaningful, um, deliberate, directed way, uh, the trauma these kids have suffered is, we can't even imagine what they, what they have suffered. And th- they're not getting the services that need, when they need them, which is at the very beginning, at right, you know, six months later, it could be, I mean, we've had disrupted adoptions because they were not able to identify clinicians to work with three little kids. I mean, it's, and everything blows up. So, Yeah, in Stratford County, I can tell you where I live, uh, six months to one year waiting list for uh, mental health services for kids. Oh, no. no. That's I mean, untenable. No, that's, yeah, absolutely. It, is. it absolutely is. And then we expect these kids to grow up and be as... Contributing n- members of society. Right. <laughs> Just not going to happen. Right, right. Um, I want to ask sort of a maybe a light question, if you will, but um, had you not been reading reading Parade Magazine that day and got together with that village of people to start CASA, what do you think you would have been doing? What were you doing then, maybe, or or do you think <laughs> is it all a blur? Maybe uh, in no. between. Yeah, um, boy, uh, I had one um, child of my own and um, biological child at the time, and I was um, waiting tables. Uh, I have. You know, I mean, I did college. I did. I, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? It, you know, it just sort of happened. And New Hampshire was one of three states left in the country. Um, I, when I read Parade Magazine, I called our national office and I said, "Where are you in New in New Hampshire? I I want to be a CASA volunteer." Mm. I mean, that was my original plan. Right? Oh, okay. And okay. they said, um, uh, "Well, uh, sorry, there are no pro." programs available in New Hampshire, but wouldn't you like to get one started? Oh, <laughs> that person asked the right question. Uh, the right person. So, yeah. so here we are. Um, and yeah. yeah, it's been quite a journey. And wow. yeah, learning, learning as I go, because I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't have a legal background, a yeah. social work background. I was an English major, right? Well, <laughs> well-written grants in that case, there right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> so to that end too, um, what... Um, when you're when you're not on stage on the forefront, um, when you are maybe driving home or when you're at home, um, who is Marty Sink? What are you up to otherwise? Oh, my um, my own sort of mental health, mm-hmm. um, uh, just to sort of be able to put things in. Uh, I I run. I have a little cabin up in Pittsburgh on nice. the first Connecticut Lake. Love nice. to spend as much time up there as possible. Um, but just try to um, try to let go of it yeah. because you need to, you you can't well, yeah. carry this all around and it's and heavy. 
we just, yeah, trying to really support our staff as well, who, um, again, is dealing with some really heavy stuff and reads these cases day after day. So um, we just did announce we're doing half-day Fridays nice. through the summer the for things. all our staff. Yeah. Nice. So That's great. Like, thought you gave him a million dollars. And you don't have to sometimes. It's the little things. That's that right. You're you're listening and responding. So that's that's amazing. Um thank you for uh reading Parade magazine, I guess. <laughs> and also uh for all of the work that you and your entire team across the state are doing. It's amazing. Um, I, I have seen it, you know, it's results firsthand. I've seen the folks involved firsthand. Obviously Matt uh, has as well. And, um, and so I'm just saying thank you because I'm really, really grateful for, for what you're doing and the fact that you've, uh, you know, you're handling those 90% of those cases and you'll get to a hundred someday maybe, and then maybe be able to retire, but yeah, it'll right. come. It'll come. Thank and you so much. Thank you for the for opportunity, Nathan, to spread the word and um, hopefully hear Matt's story, my story, and um, convince and you know um, call to action. Right for for people in the state of New Hampshire, we it, it takes a village, and and we need more folks to get involved in these children's lives. Excellent. And if people want to join that village as a volunteer, a donor, or just to find out more, where should they go? CasaNH.org. It's a great way to wrap it up. Marty Sink, CEO of Casa of New Hampshire. Thanks again. And now the buzz. So let's dive into something that everyone should be talking about this week. And we're doing a little change here, Nathan. You want we are doing tell a little people change. So it? he didn't just say, and now the buzz with Matt Mowry. Because we decided, you know what, we like our segments that we have separately, but why not end the podcast with us together and us talking about something business or New Hampshire related. And um, that's what we decided to do. So we're going to try it out. We're going to see how folks like it. Maybe they'll holler and scream. Maybe they'll clap. I don't know. Um, But what's neat, too, about this week's um, the start of this segment this week is um, Matt is a leadership New Hampshire graduate. As is best class ever, oh seven. Oh seven. Oh, oh, as is Marty Sink, who's still here with us. I'm sorry, best class ever was 2013. And yours truly was just accepted to the best class ever 2023. So, um, because I'm the newbie, I'm gonna rely on you guys to tell our, our listeners what Leadership New Hampshire is. Well, sure. And, you know, it's it's a great time for us to talk about this because during the last two years, New Hampshire has seen a tremendous shift in its leadership. Many executives have retired and making way for others in their organizations to rise up in the ranks or they are bringing in new leaders uh, from out of state for a fresh perspective. Either way, we have a lot of new leaders in our state. And so, uh, you know, one of the things we want to talk about is the fact that we have a lot of rich resources for these leaders, whether they're new or, or been here a while in the form of leadership programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a lot of community-based ones like right. Leadership Manchester yeah, and a Rochester lot of, has come one. out of chambers as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. And then there is the statewide one, Leadership New Hampshire. Now, what these aren't is to teach you how to be a leader. <laughs> um, what they are are programs that were designed to take established leaders, um, wh- whether they're new or been in the organization well, but people who are in leadership positions in the state, 
and bring them into a program that lasts about nine months, I think, where they meet monthly and they tackle a different topic in the state to give you a really in-depth look at the issues that are affecting and shaping our state. So by the time you get out of this program, you have a better sense not only of what's going on in our state, the challenges they're facing, the solutions that are being taken a look at, but you get a better sense of what your role might be in that. So now having set that table, <laughs> let's talk about the experiences of leadership in Hampshire. Marty, yeah. what was it like for you? What, what did you get out of it? Uh, it was an amazing experience, and I would highly recommend it to anyone who's considering it. I, I sort of pondered the idea for a lot of years and finally took the plunge, thanks to Steve Reno. Um, and it was, you know, for me, it was experiencing different arena you know we all get stuck in our little uh, in our own little bubble right and what right. we do every day and the people that we associate with but this really had me step out of that box and get to know people in different industries um, different types of, of organizations also to get around the state geographically mm. yep. yeah. our our classes each month met in a different location and it, the cohort of our two, it was around 30, 30-ish people. Um, so it was, there were people from all sorts of, of backgrounds and businesses and nonprofit uh, world. And I, our class is amazing. Uh, we still uh, get together quarterly. And those that can show up just do. And we move our quarterly gatherings around the state as well. Um, but I highly recommend it. It just, the relationships that are forged and the opportunities that then present themselves for you or for others um, because of those relationships are, uh, they're priceless. I absolutely agree. I, you know, it's not an opportunity when you're an adult sometimes to, it's not easy to make friends, right? You know, like <laughs> make new friends that are, you know. And, um, you know, I got so much out of Leadership New Hampshire, but I also got, like, a couple of really deep friendships mm-hmm. out of it. Mm-hmm. That people that are, you know, my ride or die. You know, it, and that was amazing in itself. But, it, you know, I'm the editor of Business New Hampshire magazine. I cover things on a statewide level. I went into this thinking, <laughs> well, what are they going to teach me? Right, I don't know. right. And I learned so much because there's, you know, you're just not involved in these different aspects of our state's life, as it were, in in all ways. Yeah. And so it's wonderful that you, you. So often in our world, we're so busy just dealing with our careers, our families, yeah. our life. Right. You don't have a. T- we don't take the time enough to just take a breath and have constructive conversations with people that may not think the way that we do. Mm-hmm. And Leadership New Hampshire is wonderful in that once a month when you're in this program, you're coming together with 20, 30 thoughtful individuals from different walks of life, different industries, different political beliefs, and you get presented these wonderful experts who come in, explain to you what what's going on in this particular thing, whether it's the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. government, education. And you hear from these experts, and then you debate them with the folks that you're with. And 
these are all folks, like I said, they're leaders. They are coming from different walks of life. They have their own expertise that they're coming in with. And so it's this way to have these wonderful conversations, these deep conversations, and you don't always agree, but that's okay because Leadership New Hampshire and, other, and, and our other leadership programs are all about coming together and we want you to have different perspectives, but we want you to talk in a civil way. And that's something I think that we're losing too much of in our society. Very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I'm excited about all of that, to be quite honest with you. I um, was actually referred by Andrea Brochu, oh. a CASA staff member and oh. Leadership New Hampshire alum. Um, and I was like, oh, well, so Andrea and I met in the Community Practitioners Network through the Tillotson Foundation. We were uh, both involved in that um, just sort of just before, just at the beginning of the pandemic. Um and that was a different experience. That was sort of, you know, learning facilitation and, and yeah, le- meeting other people, but from our region and, and all of that. So, um, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to that. I was pretty I was pretty honest and open in some of the que- the answers to the questions in the application. And mm-hmm. I got a couple of questions from the two people that interviewed me. One, a gentleman who's uh, they're both alums, of course, but one whom I know. And I said, listen, this is just how I feel. Am I going to like, you know, get up and rage on a soapbox about it? No, I would love to have to find out what other people think about the same issues and and talk through that with them. Because I tend to be that kind of person that not, you know, is there necessarily that follower, but someone who would say, you know what, this is my idea or this is my opinion, but this is what someone else is thinking and feeling. And that's okay. And that's valid. And I probably would learn and, and pull something from that as well. So I'm so excited to get together with a totally new group of people and be all across the state and and just, you know, have this experience and probably love this state a whole heck of a lot more than I already do. I'm jealous, actually. Yeah, I I know. Tell you, best class ever, 23. That's nice you think that. I don't know about that. You got. I'm happy you're going to strive for it. Yes, yes. Yeah, Yeah. no. Cool. But congratulations. Thank you. And it's um, terrific. Good for you. Uh And highly encourage our listeners. Uh, to consider it, take a look at the not just our sta- the statewide program, but there are many throughout in our communities in the state. Um, it's a worthwhile thing to check out. Do not be intimidated by any of the costs. I yep. was a scholarship guy. Yep, um, they Likewise. are available, Likewise. and um, it it will give you a whole different perspective on either your community or the state that you live in. Yeah, cool. Um, and can I say it this time? And that's what we're buzzing about this week. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. Check out the Cardinal blog and learn about our services at cardinalconsultingnh.com. We're on social at cardinalconsultingnh. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a joint production of Business New Hampshire Magazine and Cardinal Consulting.